This week on the Backtable Podcast. A lot of doctors that see these patients, they don't know where to send them to. They just typically send them to a lymphedema clinic. They get turned down for lymphedema clinic. They go from one doctor, they go to a plastic surgeon, wound care centers, and they don't know. So it's very hard to spread the word. You know, this is not a very exciting procedure. Lymphedema is one of those neglected diseases, unfortunately, but it's very sad because majority of the patients that we see suffer from lymphedema. Uh, obviously not at this stage, but you know, we just kind of just say, all right, well, just wear an ACE wrap and go home and that's it, but that's really not fair to the patient. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. The Hawk One directional atherectomy system treats all plaque morphologies, including severe calcium above and below the knee. If your treatment goal is to make a small channel or to maximize luminal gain, choose Hawk One to preserve a patient's native vessel and keep future treatment options open. Risks may include, but are not limited to, arterial perforation or dissection, embolism or arterial thrombosis, and vascular complications that could require surgical repair. Learn more about Hawk One as well as risk and safety information at medtronic.com slash Hawk One. This discussion is supported by Philips OBL and ASC Solutions Symphony Suite, the industry leader in opening cardiovascular office-based labs and ambulatory surgery centers. With the convenience of a single trusted point of contact, they offer more of what you need to turn your passion into reality, including a full range of high-performing, highly specialized equipment and services, devices, financial options, site planning, guidance on construction partnerships, and more. When it comes to opening an OBL or ASC, Symphony Suite delivers convenience and support as the expert you need, the partner you trust. To learn more, visit philips.com slash symphonysuite. Now, back to the episode. I'm your host, Dr. Ali Behetti, coming to you from Tacoma, Washington. And my guest today is a vascular surgeon, Dr. Kuldeep Singh, Director of Limb Salvage Surgery and Program Director at Zucker School of Medicine at Northwell Hospital in Staten Island. Our topic today is open lymphedema interventions. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is a great opportunity to spread the word about lymphedema. And, you know, I'm very excited to be on this uh, podcast. Yeah, it's clearly a topic you're passionate about. Could you tell me a little bit about the pathway that led you to your current job? So I actually did my training out in uh, Philadelphia. And then I'm originally from uh, New York. So came out here, did a year of cardiac surgery, wasn't sure whether I want to do cardiac surgery or vascular surgery, uh, and realized that my true passion was indeed vascular surgery. I love the interventions, the open and endovascular procedures and what have you. So I switched over to vascular surgery. So did a fellowship of vascular surgery and here I am. Oh, awesome. Awesome. And how long have you been out in practice? About 10 years. Fantastic. When you first started as a vascular surgeon attending, was it your plan to become a lymphedema specialist? No, I think all vascular surgeons come out and practice and we all think our first case is going to be a big thoracoabdominal aneurysm <laughs> or or some carotid and what have you. And then the first phone call you get is from the emergency room and it's typically gangrenous toes. So most of my practice is uh, focused on peripheral vascular disease, complex uh, interventions and what have you. And that's how uh, I started getting to limb salvage. So this was not the pathway I chose, but the, these are definitely the patients that I do wind up treating. Yeah, I know what you're saying. I mean, 
even in IR, you expect your first case is going to be a trauma, some crazy embolization maybe, and then they, they'll call you because they want a thyroid biopsy, right? So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I feel like that disappointment is universal across all fields. <laughs> well, tell me a little bit about how you came to become an expert in these lymphedema debulking cases like I see you post on social media. This is actually an interesting story, so it might take a little time, but but I think it's worth telling. So there was a patient, uh, I think this was my first year out in practice, maybe first six months or so, and uh, there was a patient, a uh, young lady, about 32 years old. So again, I should preface all these patients, these stories are unique, their images, the way their legs look and what have you, it, they're very unique and easily identifiable. So we do get permission from the patients to talk about their cases and what have you. In fact, they love talking about their disease. So this uh, particular patient, her name was Wanda, and she talks for us all the time. And one side of her leg is about four to five times as the other side. Uh, she's a very skinny lady, and uh, she's married, had children, what have you. And I walked into the room, and I could tell mentally just she's just very, very upset. Uh, she starts crying as soon as I walk in. And I said, what's going on? And she said, this is the last place that I'm going to. After this, I can't go to any more hospitals or any more doctors. I'm like, well, what's going on? So she lifts up her sweatpants on one side, and I see this leg, which it's massive, massive. So I'm like, oh, wow. And she shows me the other side. It's totally normal. And she said, I've been to some of the biggest institutions for the last 10 years, and I've been suffering with this condition. And they just keep sending me to another doctor, to another doctor, and they send me to lymphedema clinics, and they tell me I need compression, what have you, and nobody's able to help me. So I was like, well, I'm not sure I can help you. I was going to tell her, go somewhere into the city, go to a bigger institution, maybe someone can do something else. But uh, that's what she already told me she, she's been there. So that was kind of my, my first case that I encountered with these type of problems. Wow, that's quite a tale. So how long had she been suffering with that leg swelling? So she actually uh, had it for about 15 years, and it slowly started to get worse and worse to the point that it led to her getting a divorce. She lost her job. She was no longer able to work. There was weeping from the leg. She was hospitalized constantly. And, you know, what's interesting is, uh, and I, I've seen this even after her uh, other stories, very similar, is these patients have trouble getting clothes that would fit. So if one leg is normal and the other leg is, you know, four or five times the size, what they typically wind up doing is getting two pairs of pants, typically sweatpants, so that you get one small and one, uh, let's say, triple extra large, and you cut the pants in half, sew them together, and then you have to put it on. And that's what all she had. And I remember her saying, the only thing I want to do is I just want to wear a pair of normal jeans for the last 15 years. That's the only thing I, I, I wish I could do. And... You know, I told her, I said, I, I have read about this type of procedure. I don't do this procedure. Well, she said, well, then I just rather just have an amputation because the leg is pretty much no longer usable and I'm basically just dragging it around. I can barely get out of bed now. It's becoming that bad. Oh, my goodness. So she came to you with this problem. She'd been evaluated by many people. Nobody had a solution. You had a solution, but it's not something you'd done before. But why were you willing to give it a shot? Well, she said, you are the last doctor. So pretty much she wasn't leaving my office. Either we're going to do something for this, treat her, or we're doing an amputation. Goodness gracious. All right. So what's the proper name for the surgery that uh, I've been calling lymphedema debulking surgery? What is that what you call it in vascular surgery? I guess colloquially, it's known as Charles procedure. Uh, Dr. Charles, I think in 1920s or so, 
did a bunch of the procedures for patients that had elephantiasis of the scrotum. And uh, I forget exactly where it was, but he did about 100 patients or so. And he essentially debulked the entire tissue of the scrotum only. He did, actually didn't do any of the legs. So it's kind of a misnomer, but in the vascular surgery world, it's known as the Charles procedure. When you say Charles procedure, that's what they talk about. So this is essentially just radical debulking. That's what I call it, radical debulking of uh, whether it's a lower leg, whether it's a thigh, or some people call it a modified Charles procedure. But I think probably the accurate term would be radical debulking of lymphatic tissue. So let's just kind of get into it. What's, um, what's your workup for this procedure? Well, there's different stages of lymphedema, obviously, right? So there's uh, stage one, two, three. Three is the stage that I typically treat. That's the end stage of lymphedema where the patients have no other options. Stages one and two, there are other suggestions or other recommendations, definitely not surgery, uh, typically. Yeah, before we go any further, could you tell me a little bit about the different stages of lymphedema? Sure. Uh, lymphedema is uh, typically classified into three stages. Stage one is the very you know, low-grade, just mild leg or arm swelling. That's something we typically see, uh, all doctors, I think we see this in the office. Every patient that comes in has got leg swelling or arm swelling. The management for that typically is just compression therapy. Stage two, you know, and there, there isn't a formal way to really stage. Some people have recommended uh, that the volume that's in the leg or the size of the leg, maybe it's more than, you know, five centimeters higher than the contralateral side. That's a diagnosis of lymphedema or that may be a stage two or what have you. But there isn't really a clear guideline as to what the stages are. So you just kind of look at it and you basically just stage it, you know, what you think it may be. So what do you do for a stage two disease? So stage two, again, compression therapy, I think that is probably the mainstay for stage one, stage two, a disease as well, and most people even say for stage three. But there are other proposed procedures, things like lymphovenous bypasses or lymph node transfers, but those historically have had very, very poor results. And uh, I think that those are done in very selective centers. Typically, insurance doesn't reimburse for those. And the other problem with that is once you make an incision and the procedure doesn't work, and these patients have lymphedema, you could potentially make them worse. I see. Yeah, because you've disrupted the subsystem that's already kind of teetering on the edge. Um, and I guess there are probably concerns about turning a stage two patient into a stage three patient, which leads me to, so what's stage three lymphedema, which is what you see probably? So stage three is non-reversible. It's typically stage one and two, you can't control with compression. Stage three, you cannot control with compression. That's where the swelling gets so bad that you have chronic uh, inflammation and uh, cellulitis. These patients are hospitalized frequently. And the skin essentially just turns into this uh, woody, scaly, dry skin. And now compression is no longer possible. And uh, you can literally just knock on the skin and you can sometimes hear it. Almost, it's almost like wood. My, yeah. What options do patients with stage 3 disease have? So again, I think, you know, most of these patients wind up going from a doctor to doctor because uh, the therapy for lymphedema is typically compression. The problem is they want a real solution. And that's the problem. There's not many people willing to treat these patients. There's not great treatment options. So stage three, a, a debulking procedure has been proposed. But again, the Charles procedure, you know, traditionally not had great success. There's been high rates of recurrence, limb loss as well. So for these type of patients, we do uh, let them know that there is a chance that they may have recurrence. And if recurrence occurs, it can be pretty devastating, much worse than their disease currently is. 
Can we get a little bit into the nuts and bolts of the Charles procedure and how you perform it? Take me from start to finish, um, basically from workup for the procedure. Let's start with how do you work up patients for a Charles procedure? This is, uh, you know, pretty interesting. And this is something that we've learned over time is what we need to do. So initially, that first patient, going back to her, when we treated her, and I'll get into the details of the procedure, but some things that we learned is once we treated the patient, functionally, she did great. She was able to walk around. She was able to wear her clothes and what have you. But it took about six months for her to actually appreciate what she had now compared to what she had before. So there is a big, you know, psychosocial issues and these sort of body dysmorphic issues these patients have is they see their leg. People say this all the time. They're like, well, how did you let the leg get that big? It doesn't make sense. The same thing with cancer. If you have a big cancer and the patients are saying, well, it was always there. It's kind of like that, you know. So once you go ahead and you debulk that tissue and you take away that all that mass and you make that leg return back to a normal size, these patients kind of miss the old leg. Wow. That's really interesting. It's like a phantom limb thing. It's a phantom limb thing. And I just couldn't believe it when she came back and she she was like, ah, it's good. It's fine. It's everything. Like, but I don't know. I think it, it looks worse than what it was before. And I remember I was in there with my <laughs> PA and the PA looked at me like, what? Is she, is she crazy or something? Yeah. <laughs> you know. And it turns out this is true for almost all of the patients, no matter how bad the leg is. And they can be bedridden for six months. I had a patient uh, literally for six months. He was in bed for, and we did the procedure on him. He came back and he has got a walker and that's all he was using. And I thought he was going to give me a big hug. And what I'm like, I'm thinking I'm the, the savior of this yeah. patient. <laughs> and he's like, well, this leg looks terrible. <laughs> I, was like, like, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Yes. Yeah, so there's definitely a component of body dysmorphic disorder that comes with this because you're so used to having this limb, regardless of what it looks like, but you've had it for uh, 15 years, 20 years, and that's what you're used to. Now, overnight, it's changed, and you don't know how to handle a normal leg. That is so fascinating. All right. So, well, let's go back a little bit to um, talking about who's a good candidate for the procedure. Is it all stage three patients? We only offer this to stage three patients because of the risk of recurrence and prolonged hospitalizations, anesthesia, what have you. It's a very big surgery. And even for stage three patients, we don't just get straight into it. We first put them on sort of this uh, protocol. It's kind of like bariatric surgery. So we make sure that they're good follow-up. So we have them follow up for about six months. Every month, we have them go to a lymphedema clinic. Usually, they're denied by lymphedema clinics because these patients have open wounds, and those clinics will not accept these patients. That's so interesting. I didn't know that. Okay. But I do want to make sure that they actually went there because that tells me that they are trying. And I want the reason that it's important is because postoperatively, it's very important that they comply with compression. So if they're not doing it, preoperatively, I know they likely will not do it postoperatively and they're not going to have a good outcome. So it's just like bariatric surgery. You send them to a weight loss. A lot of these patients are obese as well. So I do put them on a weight loss regimen. That's I will continue with the surgery regardless of whether they lost weight or not, but I actually did have to buy a special skill to hold these patients. And I do want to make sure that they're at least not gaining weight. Yeah. Okay. So weight loss regimen, they have to do lymphedema therapy or attempt it basically for six months. And then let's say they, they've jumped through those hoops, they're at your office, they're saying, Dr. Singh, it's not working, what can we do now? Remember, there is a risk of recurrence and there is a risk of limb loss. I always discuss that and I make sure that the patients know. So during 
each visit, every month they come to see me, they see me six times. So for six months, they come once a month. And I, we talk about the same risks every single time. I want to make sure that they are clear what the leg's going to look like. I show them images of the legs that we've done in the past. I tell them about this, what we just discussed about that sort of body dysmorphic sort of issue that they likely will have afterwards. And I tell them that this is mostly for function. It's not necessarily for cosmetics. It's going to be for function only. So also them coming back every six months tells me that they will comply. And that's one thing I've noticed is that we have 100% follow-up with these patients. Afterwards, we can document these patients. We know exactly what's, what's going on with them. I have their cell phones. We don't do that many patients altogether. We've probably done about 70 patients. So it's easy to track them. And uh, like I said, they're very good at follow-up. That's amazing. Talk to me a little bit about the surgery. Do you um, admit them to the hospital overnight? How long is the surgery? Let's get into some of the details about the actual surgery. One thing I should mention is I don't do this alone. I uh, work with another doctor. He's a, a plastic surgeon. Uh, he's the director of uh, burn unit here at Staten Island University Hospital. His name is uh, Michael Cooper. So he is my main guy that I work with, and he does the skin grafting and post-op wound dressing changes and what have you for these patients. So it's very important to have a team. So typically what we do is that we admit the patients the night before. We take an Eshmark. I don't know if you know what that is, but that's basically an ACE wrap that's made out of plastic. It's, it can, you can put this on very tight. You can even use it as a tourniquet. We wrap this around the leg and we put it on very tight to the point that you would think that it's going to cause ischemia. But Again, the leg is so big and it's so woody that it really doesn't do anything. But it does help us the next day when we're ready to do surgery. It makes the leg a little bit softer and it squeezes out some of the fluid in the leg. The amount of fluid that you can lose can go up to about 10 liters or so. Recently, we did a patient, uh, they had about 7 liters of fluid loss. Not necessarily blood, it's just mostly lymphatic fluid. So you do have to watch that. With the surgeries, we would admit them the night before. We put them on, make sure that they're on some sort of DVT prophylaxis. A DVT in these patients would obviously be devastating since you're debulking all the lymphatic tissue. Now you got a DVT, that could be very bad. So we, we're very aggressive with anticoagulation. Okay, so you, you got them in the OR and they're on your operating table. So what do you do? Typically, the, the leg is prepped pretty well. Often these patients have a lot of crevices and uh, I won't get into the details, but the things that you may find in those crevices because it's very hard for them to clean. Right. So typically what we do, we make an incision on the anterior portion of the leg. That leg itself can be up to about 50 to 70 pounds or so. Again, it's not tissue uh, because once we remove everything and we send it to pathologists, they tell us, okay, well, you removed 25 pounds of tissue. And, uh, you know, we're usually looking at the report. We're like, there's no way that was 25 pounds. There's much more than that. Okay. Because you have to remember, it was all, it's essentially tissue that has gallons of fluid that's stuck inside. And all that fluid is gone by the time it goes to the pathologist. It's kind of like a sponge. And you're taking out the sponge when it's all wet. And by the time it gets to pathology, it's all dried out. That's a great analogy. I'm going to use it if you don't mind. When I <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, essentially, we, we make an incision. Uh, we go all the way down to the fascia. Now, this is separated in the lower leg and the thigh. So the thigh... The knee basically separates the, the majority of the time, separates the pathology, whether it, it's lymphedema in the thigh or lymphedema in the lower leg. So uh, the more exciting, I guess, or the more surgically, I guess, exciting portion is when we do this in the lower leg. So I'll just talk about that a little bit. We make an incision. We go all the way down to the fascia. Once we get down to the fascia of the lower leg, 
uh, we start essentially just dissecting around it, which seems pretty simple, uh, except these patients have had inflammation for years and years, and they've had cellulitis, and it's very hard to distinguish fascia from tissue from fat. And the other thing is the fat is not regular fat. The fat becomes calcified, and it can be very difficult to cut through that. It's basically like you're burrowing through and I remember this one particular case that I had, and I actually got very nervous on that one day. This wasn't one of the first ones. This was probably about 20 or 25th case that I was doing. And I was thinking, I'm like, oh, I don't think I can cut through this anymore. The fat became so calcified that the electrocautery or the, the knives, nothing would work, nothing. And then a medical student suggested, what about using uh, wire cutters? <laughs> and so I took these wire cutters or bone cutters. I'm not sure exactly what they were. And I had to use that to cut through the fat. That's amazing. Yes, it was very, very impressive. And it actually saved me that I wasn't, I was kind of stuck as to w what I would do at that point. And so we've used that a couple of times after and it's made things a lot easier. So it should uh, give a shout out to the medical student, but I forget his, <laughs> his name. So sometimes you have to do that. So you, essentially you go down to the fascia, you take the entire skin, fat, soft tissue, everything off of the fascia and you just leave the fascia intact. You try not to violate the fascia. If you violate the fascia, the muscle will pop out and cosmetically it just won't look good because now you have the fascia encasing the entire muscle and then you have this one area where the muscle just keeps bulging out and the patients are typically not very happy when they see that afterwards because initially the leg looks great, but later on when it starts looking better and better, now it starts looking like a real leg and now they got this big bulge coming out from the side of a normal leg. It must be really difficult and comes with time and practice for how to identify where what is fascia, right? And then what is very morphologically abnormal superficial tissues. So you take down all of the superficial tissues. You take down the skin too, right? Yes, skin, uh, soft tissue as well. Uh, like you said, it can be difficult to identify fascia. Normally, it's not that difficult. But in these patients, it is. Um, before we move on, I don't know if you were going to talk about this, but it is very important when you're saying it's hard to identify tissue is down by the ankle, that's the most dependent part. That's where it becomes extremely difficult to dissect. And that's where you can run into issues. So the most of the, the structures becomes very superficial at that area. So anterior tibial artery, posterior tibial artery, as well as the Achilles tendon. So earlier on, actually, I actually wind up cutting through the Achilles tendon once. I didn't realize yet. So, you know, that was a big learning uh, learning curve for me. Also, I wind up in one of the cases hitting the posterior tibial artery and I couldn't reconstruct it. We had to just tie it off. Luckily, the patient did not have arterial disease. But that's something that I've learned that when once you're down there, that's where you have to be super careful because it's very easy to get into those structures. Gotcha. Yeah. This is like totally not on the same level at all, but it kind of reminds me how I, I do a fair amount of superficial venous disease in my practice. And we talk about the areas where you can really cause issues and it's down by the ankle and then just like at the knee and the medial, the medial calf and at the medial knee. So just places to look out for where it's high rent real estate. Yes, there's no tissue there. So it's just, you know, skin, a little bit of fat, and then that's it. So you, you've taken down all of the soft tissue. Um, and then do you have your you have your plastic surgeon scrubbed in to do the skin grafting at the same time? No, they come into play later on. So once we dissect off all the tissue and we're happy with what we have, uh, the next step is typically a wound vac. And this is where I think the reason that we have a very good 
success rate and a very good long-term outcomes is the way we do this part is very important is that we place a wound vac on and we typically leave it for one week. We don't remove it until we get excellent granulation tissue and that becomes the bed for the plastic surgeons to go ahead and do their skin grafts. I see. Okay. Wow. That's a long time. Anything else intraoperatively that you do before you uh, take the patient out of the OR that you'd like our audience to know about? This is a, a little bit more detailed, but in the past, what has been described, and again, I think this is why the Charles procedure just doesn't have a great reputation, is it has been proposed that the tissue that you remove, some people have uh, in the past taken this, that skin and used that skin as the skin graft. And I think that probably will lead to not a very good outcome. Again, that skin, it's been colonized with bacteria for years and years, even though it may look like good skin. And I think the, you know, the purpose of doing that would be that you don't have to put a patient through big skin grafts and start taking skin grafts off of their other parts of their body. But I think that's probably not wise to do. And that's something we don't do. So we discard all of that tissue, regardless of what it looks like. All right. So now you your patient's done with the procedure. Um, typically, how long do these cases take? Uh, so the very first two or three cases or so, uh, I think they took about seven hours. But, you know, that's because we weren't sure how we were going to plan our incisions. Uh, we didn't know. Something that's interesting is the smoke that's elicited from the electrocautery. Normally, the electrocautery is set about when we do operations about, you know, 25 to 30 or so. But that doesn't work in, in this thick tissue. Uh, so we set the bovie up to about 100, uh, which is very, very hot. And the amount of smoke that's elicited is, I mean, afterward, you can feel it in your throat. And it, it stays there for a few days that you get this sort of, you know, sore throat. And the rest of the people in the operating room have that same sort of uh, feel. So we've now devised our own, like a smoke uh, suction, uh, bovie smoke suction sort of device. And that helps us uh, a lot with the smoke. You said the first few cases took about seven or eight hours. How long does it take you to do one of these nowadays? Uh, yeah, from, from what we've learned, we realized that bleeding we can easily control with, uh, we use ligature devices. Uh, we don't use electrocautery that much anymore. Uh, we realized that just going straight down to the fascia, knowing how to dissect the tissue off the fascia, we can go pretty quick now. So now it takes probably about two and a half to three hours, even the very complex looking ones. Uh, we can get them done, I would say probably about three hours or so. That's amazing. Yeah. For how much work and just for how much tissue you take off to take all that off in three hours. Wow. And then what's the post-operative course for these patients? Let's talk first about the intra-hospital course. After the surgery, the patients typically go to the burn ICU and we're, I don't think we could do this procedure if we didn't have a burn ICU. Those, uh, the nurses in that unit are excellent. They know how to change the dressings. Again, these are not just small little dressings that need to be changed. It's pretty much an operation. But you don't want to take these patients back to the operating room every day and, and, and put them under anesthesia or every, whatever, two to three days or so to change the dressing. So in the burn ICU, they have what's called a hydrotherapy room where they can clean these patients, uh, scrub down all the tissue, and then reapply the vax. The vax are circumferential vax that pretty much take up half of the leg and there's a lot of troubleshooting that's involved when there's leaks from the vac and the burn ICU team is uh, excellent when it comes to that. Fantastic. How long do they typically stay in the hospital? So uh, believe it or not, the first, I would say probably about six or seven patients that we've had, we had them stay uh, probably about four weeks or so. The longest length of stay was 55 days. Uh, now we've got it down to no, 
no more than probably about two weeks. That's amazing. Any planned reoperations? Do you do the skin grafting while they're still inpatients? Oh, yes. We uh, send them to the uh, ICU. We leave a vac on. The vac gets changed, uh, as I said, you know, every two or three days or so, and we do that for about seven days. Once we're happy with the granulation tissue that's formed and there's a good bed that's created, then we'll take them and we'll go ahead and uh, skin graft these patients. Once the skin graft is done, we put the vac back on over the skin graft. That kind of keeps the, the graft from not moving keep the patient immobilized again. And we want to make sure that the key here is that there's good graft uptake. And once we're happy with that, then we'll send the patient typically to a, a rehab facility. Wow. Okay. Okay. And then after they're discharged from the hospital, when they're in rehab, uh, when do they come see you in your clinic? They typically come see us, uh, you know, about a week after their discharge. But I think the audience would be interested to know, uh, again, this going back to that body dysmorphic uh, issue is, if you look at the leg, if both legs are involved and one leg is just massive and now it's shrunk down to almost a totally normal skinny leg and the other leg looks huge, the patients have this sort of idea that if they put weight on this leg, that the leg is going to break or it's going to fall, that they can't bear weight on it. So it takes them about four or five weeks or so to learn how to walk. And it's not because they were debilitated in the ICU bed. We get them out of bed the next day. They're sitting in a chair. But once they're free and you tell them that they can walk without assistance, they feel like they can't just because this sort of perception that the leg cannot hold weight. What they don't realize is all of the tissue that was removed was nothing but skin and fat and really you know, doesn't hold any weight at all. All the muscle is left intact. But it's hard to get that through your head once you're looking at that leg. It's so skinny. It looks like it's just going to break. So many uh, psychological issues that come along with pre-procedure and post-procedure, things that I would never have thought about. Just really amazing. And you probably weren't thinking about them before you started doing these cases. So, Yes, not at all. But now I know exactly what's going to happen, what they're going to say. So it's pretty consistent with all the patients. So just for my knowledge, because I don't really know any other folks who do these kind of cases, how common is it to get training to do these procedures as a vascular surgery resident? As far as I know, there is no specific training for this at all. Uh, it's just whether you're in a center that may uh, do it. No centers that I know that do it. I'm sure there's other people that do it. There's no doubt about that, but I just don't know it. Uh, we definitely do it here, and I think our fellows are very lucky that they will have this experience. How many um, comparable centers would you say there are across the United States? I just don't know. It seems to be like a very select one or two patients that get this. The patients themselves may post something on social media, say, hey, I had this surgery done and what have you, or there's a case report, some center uh, may post, that's it. But we actually, we're waiting to publish our data. We're actually working on it. So I think we probably have one of the biggest experiences in terms of numbers when it comes to this procedure. Do you find that most of your referrals are uh, self-referrals from patients who've like read about you or seen your work? Or is it doctors that you've, you've interacted with who've, who see these patients in large numbers and send them to you? It's actually a mix of, of both. And that's kind of the sad part is that a lot of doctors that see these patients, they don't know where to send, send them to. They just typically send them to a lymphedema clinic. They get turned down for a lymphedema clinic. They go from one doctor, they go to a plastic surgeon. Uh, wound care centers, and they don't know. So it's very hard to spread the word. You know, this is not a very exciting procedure. These are not branched endografts <laughs> and, and some sort of atherectomy devices and, and what have you. 
lymphedema is one of those neglected diseases, unfortunately. But it's very sad because majority of the patients that we see suffer from lymphedema. Uh, obviously not at this stage, but you know we just kind of just say, all right, well, just wear an ACE wrap and go home and that's it. But that's really not fair to the patient. No, it's really amazing. What do you think the recurrence rate is after the surgery for clinically significant lymphedema? There's not much published on this in terms of rates of recurrence. Uh, we've had very good compliance, and I think that's probably the key. I think if the patients can comply, I think the recurrence rate should be very, very low. As long as they're wearing compression stockings, they're following up, uh, they're managing their diet. Another thing I should add is lymphedema is typically broken up into your primary and secondary lymphedema. Secondary is from some sort of surgery that you've had or radiation. Primary, obviously, is a genetic issue. But a third thing that I think that we're realizing now is uh, obesity causes lymphedema. So now with the rising rates of obesity, you're also starting to see the venous stasis, skin changes in the legs and what have you. And over time, it just gets worse and worse. And uh, I think it starts affecting the, the lymphatic channels and uh, it leads to bad lymphedema. I'm just blown away by just, I'm still thinking about the surgery and, and how long it takes and how you take out this gigantic sponge and then send it to pathology. Right. Well, it's, it's interesting. We take this sponge or whatever this tissue is, <laughs> and we typically put it in a bucket and we let it sit there until at the end when the nurse says, hey, are you ready to send it to pathology? And when we're ready to send it there, I said, yeah, send it. And I look over at it, and this happens every time, is the bucket is full of fluid, which wasn't there. Over time, the fluid just comes out. So I'm like, is there any way we can send the, the water too? But <laughs> uh-huh. They don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're just going to send the tissue because it's, I'm like, well, they're, they're going to measure it and they're going to say, uh, oh, it's only 10 pounds. And uh, I'm like, no, there's no way we took out 10 pounds. Oh, you know? that's so funny. You're like, I yeah. took out way more, I promise. Way more, <laughs> way more, for sure. Can you share any patient vignettes um, about patients you've treated with this debulking surgery? You know, there's uh, another patient again. This patient did a story for us, so so I'll just tell you about it again is, he was a, um, a musician, and he was a backup, uh, I guess. I think he played bass or something. I'm not a musician, and nor do I have any musical talents or anything like that. <laughs> but, but, you know, he played backup instruments, and he was getting pretty big, and, and he was getting recognized, and he was working with acts like Cardi B and some big names. And he had to quit his job. So he said that, you know, when, he, when they would have rehearsals, he would sit there, and all the time, people would say, hey, did somebody order Chinese food? Or like, what is that smell? Because these wounds, they continuously just express fluid. And it's this strong, pungent kind of a smell that doesn't go away. And he said he was always terrified to be in a recording studio if they said, all right, let's go in the studio where you're going to rehearse and they're going to shut the doors and there's no ventilation. And that was always his fear. And this, yeah, this one time he uh, was saying that after practice, there's somebody needed a ride home and they were asking, oh, can somebody give me a ride home? And he said, I remember being like the only one that was going that way because uh, he knew where this person lived. And he said, I was trying not to make eye contact and I was trying to just get out of there. He's like, I felt bad because I was the only one that can give him a ride. But I knew if he came into my car, we'd be stuck in the car and that smell of that, that leg would, would just be overwhelming to him. And he said he just sort of ran out of there. And that was the last time he went there and he realized that uh, he can't work like this and he has to get some kind of treatment. So it wasn't that he didn't want treatment, but he would just go to the, every doctor and they would just tell him, wrap it up, wrap it up. But his leg was, you know, I mean, it was basically, you know, a piece of wood on his leg. He can't wrap it. It's not going to do anything. So we treated him. He had a great outcome and he went back to work and he's very happy. That's amazing. What a great story. 
Yeah, it does seem like by the time patients come see you, they're very motivated to have it fixed. And they've unfortunately just been to so many folks who probably aren't ill-intentioned, but just don't know how to treat it appropriately or don't know how to refer. So um, let me back up a bit and say, if you could give some advice to general practitioners or even general vascular surgeons or folks in the community who are healthcare providers who see this disease and see stage three patients, what would you like them to know um, and how can they find out where to refer these patients? Obviously, we'll take care of them here at uh, Northwell, Staten Island. We won't turn any of these patients down. We have good experience. But, you know, one thing I, if I could tell to my trainees or tell to vascular surgeons is don't neglect these patients. As I said before, this is a neglected disease process, lymphedema. It's kind of just pushed to the side. And just compression therapy alone is just not enough. You need to send them to uh, lymphedema clinics, make sure they follow up have them come back sooner than later. Uh, make sure they follow up with you constantly. It's not just one time and then that's it. Never see them again because their disease can progress. And once it starts to progress, you know, I think it's all of our obligations to, you know, get on, on the internet, go on Google and see where you can find someone that can treat these patients that have a late stage of lymphedema. What opportunities are there for vascular surgeons in practice or trainees to get training in these subspecialized therapies? I don't think there are any particular centers that offer this type of training just by itself. I think you just have to find a training program. If you have an interest in this, reach out to the training program and see if you can come, maybe watch some cases and what have you. If you choose to do this procedure, which I do encourage people to do at your training facility, is that make sure you team up with someone else that's willing to do this as well, that has an interest to do these. Cases alone can be very taxing and will take out most of your, your time. You're not going to have time to do any other cases because each patient requires multiple operations and you can just basically you know build an entire practice, I think, just with, with three or four patients per year. Wow. Let's talk a little bit about um, insurance hurdles. Do you run into any insurance hurdles with these debulking surgeries? So far, we have not, but you know, luckily, I work for a hospital system. I don't know if I'm losing the hospitals uh, a lot of money. I don't. Maybe I should not say, say that. Well, I have don't no listen idea. To like this. That. Don't listen to this podcast. Turn it off. <laughs> right. No, they've been w- very good. You know, North- Northwell and the hospital, uh, Staten Island University Hospital, they've been very good, and they realize that this is a community service. We have to help these patients because uh, it's just not fair. So. I don't know. In terms of I've gotten better at billing, I've asked my plastic surgery colleagues, they're usually pretty good at this, is how they would bill this. When I initially was billing it, I just billed it as just a removal of a mass. And I realized I was only getting like three or four RVUs for seven <laughs> hours of work. You're like seven hour case, three RVUs. Uh-oh. Right, right, right. <laughs> I should just, you know, better to just do a Mediport or something like I that know, right? and just right, get like three times that. Oh, again, we have not had too many issues. But we have had some insurance companies call us and say, why can't this be done as an outpatient? And I had to have a peer-to-peer and explain it to them. And even with explaining it, sending pictures, it was still kind of a challenge that they said, well, it shouldn't be an overnight. You could put on a vac and just send them home. But I don't think they realized the extent of the surgery. Well, then in that case, those guys should listen to this podcast so they can hear all about what you do and how long it is. I'm, uh, Yeah, I'm really amazed. Okay, well, wrapping this up, is there anything else that you would like our audience to know about treatment for these patients or what you do in particular? If there's one thing I can tell them is uh, know what centers can help these patients. Just look it up. 
there are one or two doctors that may be out there. Uh, we certainly can help out here in the East Coast. You can reach out to me for sure. You know, we would love to help these patients and, you know, get interested in this. And in terms of future treatments for this, I don't, there really isn't much going on. There isn't much research. You know, when every time I go to look something up, if you look up for future treatments and it says stem cell therapy or, you know, growth factors have shown some promise, uh, that's pretty much like a buzzword for me that's saying that there's really nothing out there. And uh, forgive my ignorance, but is there a society that's dedicated to lymphatic interventions? Again, not that I know of. I have sent these patients to get lymphograms or lymphocentigraphies and what lymphangiograms and what have you. There's, there's a, a few described techniques, I suppose, but I don't know who's doing it. The first patient that I had, I didn't know what to do with. So we did a full workup for that patient. I sent them for a lymphangiogram and they uh, attempted to stick a needle at the web space between the first and second toes. Oh, yeah, the blue dye lymphangiogram, the old school one. Mm-mm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it, the, we didn't even get to the point of infusing the dye because the needle broke. We tried two oh. needles, the needle oh. broke, and then that was it. It was so calcified. It was That's so hard. That's a good point. Yeah. That's such a good point. I never thought about that, but yeah. Yes. And these end-stage patients are totally different than the you know stage one and two that we see. That's softer tissue. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So that's good for me to note if somebody sends me a request for a lymphangiogram on a stage three lymphedema patient, I will politely decline because my 30 gauge needle won't go through their through, <laughs> through their soft tissue. <laughs> Just full disclosure, I'm in private practice. So if I never have to do another like full lymphangiogram again, I would be totally cool with it. <laughs> Dr. Singh, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. That was very fun. And uh, I love spreading the word. And I'm really uh, happy that you guys were willing to let me talk about this. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Jacob Fleming, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon. With support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson and Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 